I'd like us to turn to Numbers chapter 22 and verse 1. Numbers chapter 22 and verse 1. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. The wilderness wanderings are now over and the Israelites are now in the land of Moab. They're poised to enter into the promised land. We read in verse 2, And Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. Now the Moabites were descendants of Lot, but they had abandoned Lot's faith in the one true God. The Israelites had recently defeated the Amorite kings Sihon and Og. And the Moabites now thought that they too would fall to Israel's advance. This, however, was groundless fear because the Lord had already told Israel not to fight Moab. Moab's anxiety, however, was a fruit of that people's rebellion against God. So here we see a nation racked by fear which was unnecessary fear. Let us think upon that. Verse 4, And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. So Moab, in its great fear, seeks an alliance with Midian in common cause against the Israelite threat. We read in verse 5 here, He sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Baor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth and they abide over against me. And so there is this great fear of the numbers of the Israelites. There were certainly over two million people at this time. Uh, Balak the Moabite king, in the darkness of his false religion, thinks that the only ultimate defence against conquest is to ensure that the gods are on his side, gods with a small g, and also that the gods are against Israel. He therefore sends for the false prophet and soothsayer Balaam, who had a reputation for his 
occult practices and ability to communicate with the gods, which of course uh, had evil spirits uh, working behind them. Now, Balaam lived in a place called Pethel, which was located in northern Mesopotamia, or we would call it Syria today, uh, on the river Euphrates. Balak considers Balaam to be the one man who can help him. The Gentile nations, as indeed the Romans would subsequently do, believed that no city could be taken until its own particular guardian god had forsaken that city. They therefore endeavoured to persuade the gods of their enemies to come over to their side. And so this is how the ancient pagan mind worked. Verse 6, Come now therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. And so Balak the king evidently believed that the God of Israel, like the gods of other nations, could be manipulated if certain conditions were met. Such was the delusion of one who worshipped demons. Satan being behind all false religion. Balak could have employed his own magicians and soothsayers. But Balaam, he is convinced, has very special powers. Now we can trace similarities between Balaam here and Simon Magus in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 9 uh, we read that there was a certain man called Simon which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria giving out that himself was some great one whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest. Now, Gentile pagan worshippers, uh, with whom Paul and the other preachers often had to deal uh, in, in their evangelistic endeavours, these pagan worshippers, though believing in many gods, also often acknowledged that there was a supreme deity. But this did not change their hearts, nor make them abandon the worship of the other false gods. Thus we shall find Balaam here actually affirming the power of Israel's God, yet happily defying God's law 
by his soothsaying and occultic activities. And we always see that false religion, the most dangerous type of false religion, is subtle. Balaam never denied the existence of the God of Israel, nor his power. Yet his heart remained wicked and corrupted, but he tried to fuse the worship of the God of Israel with the worship of the other gods. And that's a real problem today with the modern multi-faith movement, which is all about one world togetherness. It's a great deception. Uh, but even professing Christians are being deceived. Now, it is the case that people can exercise supernatural gifts in the name of the one true God without themselves being truly converted. And that's why we have to be on our guard against those who claim to perform great miracles. Let us remember that the high priest Caiaphas, who helped to plot the murder of our Lord, was nevertheless used as an instrument by the Holy Spirit to prophesy. Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus' death would be on behalf of the whole nation. Now Caiaphas was an evil man. Yet God used him in that instance to declare a vital truth. And this will be the case here with Balaam. Verse 7. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balaam. Now, these elders are important men of noble stock. And here we see that Balaam's prophetic gifts are his trade rather than his genuine calling from God. Because these elders bring him money in order to obtain his services. Verse 8. He said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again. And the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. The true state of Balaam's heart is revealed here. He should have told the Moabite princes straight away that he could never curse those whom God had chosen to bless. He knew that the Lord had mightily empowered Israel to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. He knew that he had more recently caused them to defeat the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. Balaam must have realised that it would be unlikely if the Lord were now suddenly to turn against his chosen people 
And yet, he harbours hopes that this might indeed be the case. He would dearly love to sell his soothsaying expertise to the Moabites. Verse 9, And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And so God himself now speaks to Balaam, perhaps by means of a dream. The Lord, of course, already knows who the people are with Balaam, but he desires to hear Balaam's own response. Verse 10, Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me then. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. So Balaam tells the Lord that the king of Moab, anxious about his military and capability has approached him that he might curse Israel on his behalf. Verse 12 And God said unto Balaam Thou shalt not go with them Thou shalt not curse the people for they are blessed. Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak Get you into your land for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. Now Balaam here is actually not being totally honest with the Moabite princes. He does not tell them categorically that it is impossible for Israel to be cursed and that Jehovah has decreed only to bless them. He simply says that at present he cannot accompany them. The Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. For all they know, this could be code language for, you have not yet offered me enough money. In other words, Balaam, although what he says here, sounds fairly good what he is in fact doing is playing with temptation he's not completely shutting the door on Balak's request he still considers the God of Israel to be a God like other gods whose will can be influenced under certain conditions Now, Balaam has had the privilege, the wonderful privilege, of the one true God of all the earth speaking to him. Yet, he has not been truly humble. He has not renounced his belief in other gods, nor his evil trade, nor his hope that Jehovah might yet change his mind about the cursing of Israel. Now, 
Balaam is an admired person. He is admired as a spiritual person. A very religious man. But he is unsaved. He has a wicked heart. He is the enemy of God. Yet he is admired as being very spiritual and religious. Again, that is incredibly instructive for us. A man can be admired as a deeply spiritual person and yet be the enemy of God. And this is a stark warning to unconverted religious people today. Someone can be immersed in religious activity and even get very near to God and yet remain utterly estranged from him. An outcast from his heavenly kingdom. And so someone can be immersed in so-called Christian activity and yet still be thoroughly unconverted and governed by a wicked heart. Verse 14 And the princes of Moab rose up and they went unto Balak and said Balaam refuseth to come with us. Now what the princes should have told Balak was that the God of Israel had forbidden him to go with them. Forbidden, forbidden Balaam to go with them. However, the king of Moab does not give up. We read in verse 15, Balak sent yet again princes more and more honourable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. Verse 17, For I will promote thee unto very great honour. I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. Now the very unsavoury nature of Balaam's soothsaying is illustrated here in that Balak really thinks that financial and other inducements might yet encourage him to find a way of cursing Israel. So the Moabite king sends even higher ranking princes to plead with Balaam, promising him great preferment and honour if only he will cause the God of Israel to remove his blessing from Israel. Now, we read in verse 18 something which sounds incredibly righteous and very, very spiritual. Verse 18. Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. 
So there, Balaam actually calls the God of Israel his own God. These are not, however, words expressive of a profound and genuine faith. Far from it. Balaam is simply stating, as a much-practised man of the occult, that the God of Israel ranks amongst those with whom he communicates, and that his experience of this God is that he is unable, through his normal methods, to do anything to turn around the will of this God. Again, this actually constitutes a warning to us today. Balaam sounds like the real thing. If you read verse 18, he sounds like the real thing. But he is someone who communicates with evil spirits. Here is a warning about false professions of being a Christian. People say that they believe in God when they do not really know what they are talking about. When they have no right to say that they are Christians, they say that they are Christians. But unless a man is born again and has a new heart... He cannot call himself a Christian. Balaam did not have a new heart. He was governed by a deceitful heart, a wicked heart. Verse 19. Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Now, his true nature is beginning to come out here. We had those fine words in verse 18. But here we see that rather than immediately dismissing the Moabite princes, telling them that their request is futile, he bids them stay the night in the hope that the God of Israel might yet say something different to him, to what he had already said. And so what a low view of God's majesty Balaam has. Does he think the one true God is a man who can be persuaded with clever arguments? And Balaam is being blinded by the prospect of riches and preferment. We know this to be the case because the New Testament tells us. 2 Peter 2, verse 15. It speaks of the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude, verse 10. Now Jude is speaking about false teachers in the church. 
as brute beasts. They corrupt themselves. Woe unto them. For they run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. They run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. So here the Holy Spirit, in those two instances, through the Apostles Peter and uh, through Jude, tells us that Balaam was lusting after financial reward. Evidently, during the night, Balaam seeks God's face and pleads with him that he might yet be allowed to go with the princes to curse Israel. And verse 20, God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. Verse 21, And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. Now here we learn another important principle. God will at times give sinners up to their heart's desires in order to punish them. So the Lord here gives Balaam permission to go to the king of Moab. Yet at the same time the Lord is angry that Balaam is going. Let no one today imagine that because God does not forcibly prevent their sinning, that their actions are therefore permissible. The allowing of sin may well actually be part of God's judgment upon a person. He allows him to sin because the sin is its own judgment. So let us look at the situation which now prevails with Balaam. He has just announced that he cannot contradict the word of the Lord, but by getting on his ass to go with the Moabite princes, he is doing just that. And this again brings home to us how religious people, even those who make strong professions of faith, can be very far off from God. Balaam, although he calls the God of Israel his God, also pronounces cursings and blessings in the name of false gods. And as he does so, he immerses himself in demonic activity. Now, yes, the one true God has spoken to him. This, however, was only because the Lord had chosen to use this wicked man to further his own purposes. It is not necessary for a, someone to be a true believer for God to employ him. Let us remember that Judas Iscariot cast out 
evil spirits. He did so alongside the other apostles. Judas Iscariot healed the sick in the name of Christ. But he is now in hell. This, of course, reminds us of our Lord's words in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils. Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So we learn that the possession of prophetic or miraculous powers is no proof of a right relationship to God. Both the example of Balaam and the Lord's words in Matthew 7 are teaching us not to be accepting and gullible towards all who call themselves Christians. The Apostle Paul made the same warning. Philippians 3 verse 18. Many walk of whom I now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. We live in an age where there are many who practice a certain fashionable sin and say, that they are Christians at the same time. They say that they are Christians and that they live with this sinful orientation. As if the new birth cannot remove a sinful orientation. So there in Philippians 3 we see Paul speaking not just of a few but of many who call themselves Christians, but who are perverting the gospel. They claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they indulge in the lust of the flesh. False doctrine flourishes in many churches today because of a failure to define the word Christian according to its true, narrow, biblical definition. A Christian is one who is supernaturally born again, not one who embraces the cultural Marxism of our time. That's not a Christian. A Christian is one who has been supernaturally transformed so as to love holiness and hate sin. If you are born again, you love 
holiness with all your being and you hate sin with all your being. You do not say that you live with a sinful inclination. You do not condone sin because it's fashionable in society. Churches have reduced the Christian faith, and we often make mention of this, because these people had such an influence on our society. Churches have reduced the Christian faith to the level of the Beatles pop song, All You Need Is Love. Now this song, which helped to fashion the whole generation and subsequent generations, this song includes these words. There's nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. It's easy. All you need is love. So, the message of our contemporary culture, which has tended to be embraced by many churches, is wherever you are right now, you are doing the right thing. All you need is love. So if you want to pursue an immoral lifestyle, that's fine. You're being yourself. All you need is love and start by loving yourself. That's the heresy of our age, loving yourself. That's the reason the feminists say abortion is all right. Oh, I've got a career, loving yourself. Just find your true self. All you need is love. Do not judge yourself, do not judge others. Christianity in the 21st century so often has been reduced and remoulded into an embracing of the prevailing philosophy of our time. And so to be a Christian is to be inclusive. To be a Christian is to embrace diversity. If you believe in equality, diversity and one world togetherness, if you are not judgmental about other people's lifestyles, if you want to save the planet from climate change and if you believe in love, you're a Christian. That is what so many churches have done. They have completely corrupted the gospel. They have conformed to the world and they have abandoned the doctrine of the new birth. The Lord Jesus Christ said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not except a man embrace the fashionable philosophies of our time. 
we must go back to the biblical definition of being a Christian. It is a sinner who has fled from the wrath to come to Jesus Christ as Saviour, endeavouring henceforth to keep God's commandments in all holiness of life. A Christian is one who has escaped from this world through faith in Christ. A Christian is one who has left the world and its fashionable philosophies. Balaam here is an example of false belief. He acknowledges the existence of the God of Israel. He even believes in his great power. You could say he is a believer of sorts, but he is not a man of God. He has not repented of his sin. He is not saved from eternal wrath. So as we consider Balaam, we see a very spiritual person who embraces multi-faith diversity. And that's what the powers that be want us to embrace today because they are scared stiff about social disharmony. The only way out of that is to embrace multi-faith harmony. And so we see how subtle false religion is. Balaam is a man who loves this world. He does not properly humble himself before God. Balaam, therefore, is the evidence to us of the truth that not everyone who says to Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who are totally transformed by the new birth will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Amen.